Welcome to the API Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ronnie Mitra, and this episode is about REST, the architectural style representational state transfer, something you would imagine we talk a lot about, talk about a lot in the API Academy. Um, actually, if you look at our material on our site or if you go and see us talk, you won't actually see us use the word REST very often. Uh, in fact, Part of the reason I wanted to do this episode was that if you were looking for information on REST, you might come and listen to us and find out what we really think about this maybe controversial architectural style name uh, and kind of the way we look at it as a team and the things we are usually more likely to talk about. So for the next 45 minutes, we'll dive into REST. I'm actually joined by probably the two people you would want to talk about this with. Um, I know if if my life depended on it, and somehow my life depended on talking about rest, the two people I'd shoot, well, one of them would probably be Roy Fielding, and the other would be one of my two colleagues. Uh, I'm joined by Mike Amundsen. Say hello, Mike. Hello, Mike. And uh, Eric Vilda. Hi, Eric. Hey, Ronnie. I will try to save your life. Thank you. You can start by maybe answering the most basic question of all, Eric what is REST? Okay. Um, well, I can, I can give my two-sentence version of it. REST is an architectural style that is defined by a number of constraints. And REST is important because it has been defined as a after-the-fact sort of rationalization of how the web works. So in the end, what REST does for us, it describes how the web works and it explains to us also why the web works as well as it does. That, that sounds uh, actually quite a bit broader and bigger than maybe I would have thought REST was, I think, years and years ago. Um, kind of a funny story. I remember when we started the API Academy, uh, it was Mike and I. And I had come from kind of years of just making things, selling things, working with this stuff. And for me, REST was just the stuff you do on HTTP, right? But pretty early on, Mike, you made a point of saying, you know, we don't really use that term as much. Uh, why is that? Why don't we see the word REST as much in API Academy material? Yeah, um, be, because mainly REST is this term that gets used in lots of different contexts. So the example conversation you and I had in the very beginning is, is uh, really to the point. REST to you meant HTTP. REST to me primarily means this dissertation. I, I love Eric's uh, way of describing it. It's an after-the-fact kind of thing that explains how and why the web works. So saying that word means you're kind of talking about two different things at the same time, depending on whose head your your headspace you're in. So it's really more important, rather than the name, to talk about what it's about, like what's the architecture about and what it's trying to do. And I think that keeps us all on the same page a lot easier than just using the term REST. Okay, so it's almost like a we get split up into these different camps. There's a camp who believes REST means doing things with HTTP. Uh, and there's a camp who maybe is more interested in, uh, you mentioned the dissertation. So yeah. tell me a bit more about the dissertation. Well, the dissertation is actually, I, I find it really fascinating. It's a, it's a, actually a very readable PhD documentation. Here's, here's a person who's just trying to you know finish their PhD program, 
needs to write a dissertation. The story is this isn't even the dissertation Roy Fielding wanted to write. He had some other ideas, but nobody was interested in it. And instead, he wrote on a project he had some association with. He was uh, working as an editor for the HTT specification. Uh, and he comes up with this really interesting idea about the way you define a style of architecture for software network systems. So that's like very dissertation-y, right? And he ends up doing exactly what Eric was talking about. And Eric could probably you know, expand on it a little bit. He defines, defines this idea about how to create these styles that match your needs, and he uses the web as an example. So REST becomes this one example thing in this long dissertation. People ignore the rest of the dissertation and just talk about this one example thing. So Eric, I know that when that dissertation came out in 2000, when Roy Fielding published this, uh, you and a group of people were really excited about it. What, what was it you saw in there that got you so excited? Well, I think what we mostly saw and what got us very interested in, in the space as a whole was that it was a alternative to how to do web services, basically, right? So back then, the term web services was kind of up and coming. And um, on the one hand, you would think that web services, at least that was my initial thought when I first heard the term, would be very webby would be about, well, how do we make services work like the web works? And then when you looked into web services back then, how they were done, it was all SOAP. So it was basically just remote procedure call. So it really didn't have anything to do with the web at all. I mean, all it did was using one specific web technology, XML, for doing RPC, right? So there was really nothing webby in web services at all. And REST became our first movement our first basically brand that we could use to say no 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 if you want to do web services and you want to do things at scale you want to do them in an open way you want to do them so that things can be combined like all the nice things that the web um, is providing for us like if you want to do those things then you really have to understand how the web works and design your services in the same way as the web works mike mike was it similar for you at the time it came out the same kind of feelings and challenges no, actually, I, I came at it from a completely different point of view, a totally utilitarian point of view. At, in 2000, I was working on, a, on a, my first really large-scale public web project, um, and I couldn't get the damn thing to work. I couldn't get it to scale. I couldn't get it to do the things it was supposed to do, and I was just desperately casting around for somebody who's thought about this. How do, how do I get these large-scale web applications to work? And I stumbled on the dissertation. So... I'm not I'm not from an academic point of view. I have two degrees in music theory. I was desperately typing, uh, I think it was ASP.NET code at the time, or it might have just been ASP code, and you know, uh, and found this found this dissertation. And lucky for me, it was very readable, and I saw that it was it really addressed some of the things directly that was really a problem for me, such as scalability and performance, and a lot of things about uh, modifiability and things like that. And I took to it. I started testing it and actually trying to get those things built into this application. And it started to solve my problem. And it actually started to solve it pretty quickly. So that's what got me started about it. I had to solve a problem. You both, uh, you both mentioned scalability. Um, is that kind of... So I'm imagining, let's put ourselves back in the 2000s. It's kind of hard to imagine now a world where REST is new. But at that time, we're talking about, like Eric said, 
lots of people using SOAP messaging, maybe still some ActiveX and applets getting deployed, right? A lot of the older stuff with Calm, maybe even some Corba floating around, little IIOP. Uh, was it primarily the scalability that got people excited that actually caused people to start adopting the style in their applications? For, I, I'll just say for myself, um, it was the scalability, the number of connections. It was the first thing I didn't understand well that, that the REST approach solved for me. The other big one was performance and especially perceived performance. The idea that caching and other things really make the web work. There's some great material in that dissertation about why caching is so important. And then the, the third one is this layered thing where I can actually add more machines to the system without breaking the rest of the system. I can add and take away to get more scalability and to get better performance. So for me, that's, it's to, that's totally scalability and performance is exactly the reason that I picked it up. Yes, similar here. So, I mean, from how Mike was just describing it, right, I think scalability and performance are kind of similar, right? And um, they, they're definitely important parts. To me also, what was very important was this whole notion of how to uh, evolve a system, right? And evolving was actually interesting in, in sort of along two axes. So one thing is versioning. Right. So in typical RPC approaches, what you often see is people build a service, they build clients against it. And whenever they want to improve the service, change the service, they are re releasing a new version and all the clients break and all that. Right. So, so that versioning is, is a rather expensive process that couples things very tightly. And REST has a story that allows you to get around that. The usual thing when you think about very few things on the web actually are versioned. Right? They evolve over time and clients are equipped to deal with that. So, so that is one axis of extensibility. And the other axis of extensibility is also that in RPC, right, you always have this idea that you're talking to exactly one endpoint, right? this idea of an endpoint. And um, that almost became the anti-pattern. Anti right? Whenever somebody talked about here is our endpoint, you knew that they were doing weird stuff. And... Um, what you can do in on the web, right? It's like you don't have endpoints. You have links, and the links point to new places. And whenever you want to interact with that new place, you go there. And when you want to have more features, you add links, and the links point to the new places where the new features are available. And the web of services that you provide, the web of resources, can grow over time, right? And again, that can be done in a way that clients can learn over time which new links are available. And if they care, they can follow them. If they don't care, they don't follow them. But again, it's something that you can do and you can evolve over time without breaking what's already deployed. And those two aspects of extensibility became, and I think still are, pretty big pain points for people who use other styles of architecture, right? And they try to architect around them but these are hard problems and you have to solve them somehow. And um, REST, I think, gives you a, a good solution for that. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, that's another great sort of personal story from me. As I mentioned, when I began, my biggest problem was scaling a system. I didn't actually have any problem with change or versioning because I owned everything. Like I committed, um, I built an app that built both the front and the back and it emitted HTML and all the JavaScript. I could change it anytime I wanted. It didn't, it didn't give me any problems. It was only until several years later I was working on another project 
where I didn't control the clients, where I wasn't the one controlling the other end of the conversation. And suddenly, this was a big deal, this ability to modify the system in some way to evolve it or extend it or customize it or, or configure it or any of that stuff. I, w I suddenly had to, had to learn that. So it was actually years later, several years, uh, that I went back to the dissertation again and started reading it and l focused on that second part that Eric was talking about. So it really, it took me several years to even run into all the problems that are, that are talked about in that dissertation. And I suspect there are people who go their entire lives and don't, you know, their computing lives and don't necessarily run into some of the problems. I just happened to be working on, on lots of different projects that were pretty intense. And it wasn't until later that versioning and modifiability and, and extensibility and evolvability became a big deal for me. And we've already reached a point where the terminology can get a bit confusing, right? So you've talked about things like evolvability and you're saying, and REST tells us how to do things without versioning. And yet, if I'm not aware of the dissertation, I'm not aware of all the details, all I know is the mobile app client that I wrote that uses REST is definitely versioned and it definitely has to change every time I change the API, right? So there's this, there seems to be this huge, huge fork. Um, I know within the academy, we actually talk about what these two two styles, the hypermedia style and sometimes what we call the CRUD or the URI style or some other terminology. Um, Mike, maybe maybe elaborate a little bit on the differences between those two things. Yeah, so the 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 CRUD style is usually this create, read, update, delete pattern really well documented by Leonard Richardson in his book, uh, Restful Web Services. This is from 2008. Uh, and really re reflected uh, the power of uh, Rails as kind of the new kind of the new way to build things. This create, read, update, delete style really kind of uses the same model as things like SQL Server and other things, and applies it to HTTP. And it means HTTP's post is create and so on and so forth. Um, the and, and that became known as REST. So uh, if you remember what Eric was talking about, there was kind of this one way of doing things, and there were, that was described as web services. And then there was this other way, and that was given the brand name REST. So people who weren't doing SOAP were actually doing REST. Actually, we have a lot of that kind of talk in our, in our early uh, content. But the thing about the, the, the REST pattern that Roy talked about was it wasn't based on the CRUD, but it was based on the idea that there are actions, there are links and forms, the way Eric was talking about earlier. So um, about five or six years ago, I just started saying, that's the hypermedia style. I just started focusing on that one aspect of it to try to give that sort of counterbalance in the difference of the way you think about it. And um, Roy, when, when the, uh, the book in 2008, the RESTful Web Services book came out, Roy wrote a blog post, Roy Fielding, complaining that this book didn't talk enough about hypermedia. It talked too much about create, read, update, and delete. And that sort of put the light bulb on for a lot of readers, a lot of followers of, of Fielding and Rest saying, oh, you mean hypermedia is a thing? We didn't know that. So th that sort of uh, kind of opened the door. So since about 2008, there has been more discussion about the difference between this hypermedia style and this create, read, update, delete style. Okay, let's start with talking just about the, that CRUD style, the one where I have a backend that's mostly data-centric, and I'm writing an app in the front, and it just needs access to the data. So 
the crud pattern seems seems okay. Um, Eric, in terms of some of the advantages of going down the rest road, specifically scalability and performance, do you think there's still advantages to building an application that way? So I'm using rest in quotes. I'm basically using rest in a crud-like way. Am I still getting scalability and performance advantages? That depends a little bit on how exactly you're doing it, right? So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with using REST for CRUD, right? It's, it's one way that you can do it. It's basically what CRUD, I think what the popularity of CRUD mostly came from the fact that it was a very, very popular concept for anybody who has ever worked with a database, right? So the idea that there are these fundamental operations, how you interact with a data source, right, that, that was very natural to people. So that translated very directly to, well, now we don't interact with our database, we interact with the web server, right, which in that case just does it through HTTP and not through some other binding technology. But in the end, I think that was the similarity of those approaches where you could say, well, if I talk to my database, I do it in a, in a CRUD style and if i talk to my web service that does crud based rest i i do the same yeah and and i would say to kind of go back to the original question is it is it still valuable to do crud stuff and the, the answer is you know double plus yes i mean there's lots of times when that's the only problem i really have you know i i don't have this big evolvability problem or modifiability problem this is going to be a short lived app it's solving a particular problem or it's working on a on a like a model that is not going to change over a long period of time. So that's going to work fine. I think another big advantage of the CRUD style of doing things is it's entirely grokkable. It's entirely understandable. People understand it really well. Like Eric said, it's like a database model. And that means that there's a lot of things I don't have to explain to someone. There are lots of things people can discover on their own. So I think that makes a lot of sense as well. And I think that's why it continues to be really, really popular. Because it solves problems in a, in a quick way, and it's easy to understand for a large, for a big audience. And, and there's, those are both very, very positive things. So there are still lots of times when I'll adopt a similar kind of approach to solving an immediate problem. And I have lots and lots of customers that do a lot of this. It, it seems to uh, have a pretty low learning curve, right? Uh, I don't know if that's because we've been conditioned to think that way from years and years of working with technology or not, but... Uh, certainly, when describing that crud pattern, people get it. Uh, I think all of us have faced the challenge of trying to introduce hypermedia to someone and seeing lots of nervous looks, lots of uh, <laughs> looks of uh, really not not understanding what you're saying. Uh, it's gotten to the point now where I usually describe it as a metaphor, right? A metaphor could be, uh, it's like giving a browser to a computer program, right? Having the, the computer program browse your API. Um, Eric, how would you describe hypermedia? If you, you meet someone who has a little bit of technology background and you have to describe to them what a hypermedia API is. I would go the same route that, that you're going, basically saying that it's how the web works, right? And there are reasons. And, and the interesting part, I think, is really there are reasons why the web works so well, right? It's, it's not that you can just look at the web and say, it's a miracle that it works so well. It's, it's sheer luck that this system actually scaled in a way that no other system ever came remotely close to, right? There, there are reasons that you can talk about that made that success at least possible, maybe not 
Maybe there would have been other ways to do it, but at least there are reasons why it was possible, right? And, and part of those reasons definitely are um, rooted in hypermedia, right? The discoverability of things, the fact that the system is decentralized, um, that you can add new capabilities, add new services without having to, um, to reconfigure the whole system, right? So I think there's very good explanations for all the all the positive aspects that you get out of hypermedia. And, and I think that it, it is a powerful metaphor when you use the, the web that we use, the human-facing web, and you, you explain things about the human-facing web and what, what makes it so useful and so scalable and so flexible and so open. And um, then you just translate that into the machine domain. Right, except obviously the challenge is that that transformation may not be, may not be simple. Um, I will say, you know, over the last few years, I've learned a lot about hypermedia. Uh, my starting point was with the fielding dissertation. I went and took a look at it. Mike, I have to say, uh, you say it has high readability. I would agree with you in that you can read it. Um, but I don't know that, you know, it was obvious that this is, this is how you do hypermedia. I didn't see that stuff in there. There was some stuff about uniform, uh, uniform uh, sorry, interface. Yeah. And it was like a paragraph. I think it was like 50 yeah. words, and then he moves on. Actually, it's, that's a really, really good point. Um, you, you read this thing, and it's like, where's the hypermedia in here? And those of us who kind of read it and read it over and already treated it almost like tea leaves, like what's going on, it turns out if you, if you, there's a section where you read, he says, and hypermedia is the engine of application state. And I think if I recall correctly, it says, we'll explain this later or something. And it never explains it. It turns out, uh, and Roy finally uh, confessed to this, I think it was uh, several years ago in one of his blog posts, that he left the whole section out that explained hypermedia and why he thought hypermedia was really important. He left it out of the dissertation and he said, I ran out of time, I was trying to graduate, I just left it out. So you're, you're very, very, uh, you know, correct in observing that this does not explain hypermedia well. Uh, and that's why I think starting around 2010 or, or somewhere around there, maybe a little bit sooner, you started to see some books come out that actually were starting to talk about hypermedia specifically uh, through, the, through the lens of rest to try to help people figure out what that meant. Roy had kind of, he kind of explained a little in a blog post, uh, one blog post, a series of properties or a series of reasons he thought hypermedia was important. And that's sort of sort of started a whole new branch of people talking about it. And that's about when you and I started to know each other. So it had been a couple of years before, and it was just starting to percolate. And that's when the API Academy kind of came on the scene. And I think it, it was a great venue for explaining to people this stuff that had been missing for so long. Right. I have to say, at times, it almost feels like um, you have these groups of scholars, you know, combing through religious texts, looking for, for meaning, and then communicating that meaning um, but I know that there's intrinsic value. So the, you know, the common complaint that I hear from people who are trying to build applications is often things like, uh, the way we build applications are too tightly coupled. We want to improve changeability. And yet here is this possible answer. Conversely, I do not see most people building applications adopting this style. Uh, in fact, more and more what I'm hearing is awareness of the hypermedia style, Maybe people experiment with it a little bit, but then ultimately they, they say to me, well, but for now, we're just going to continue building applications with this, with this CRUD style. Uh, 
Uh, Eric, are you seeing similar in your work? And, and why do you think that is? Um, yes, it's definitely similar. Um, I think one exception actually that you can see that I find is interesting and I don't know whether that will continue to grow is that in the space of kind of open data sharing, so to speak, people sharing data sets that are available, that are supposed to actually fit together um, in the sense that if you get data from your country and data from a different country or from different agencies, it would be really nice to be able to combine those data sets, right? And build more interesting data sets and analyze those compound data sets. So in that space of sharing those data sets, at least the, the part of REST, so to speak, that is about CRUD, right? <laughs> Saying that it's about identifying resources by your eyes, linking them when they actually have to be linked and these kind of things. Those principles actually are now followed a lot, right? It's, it's this whole idea of linked data. And I, I think that is interesting because that is a community that is a lot about a decentralized approach to provide services in the form of data. And those services actually should become something that people can combine. Right. So it's something where this architectural alignment makes it much easier for people to actually do that. And I think that is also the difference a little bit why you don't see it quite as much in individual APIs. And actually, Mark Nottingham, I think, has a really, really interesting blog post about that when it comes to how are you designing your API, right? Are you actually designing your API that you will only have one server that people will ever talk to? Or do you assume that your API, your design, how you expose services and capabilities will actually be deployed across a wider, wider variety of service, right? And depending on those constraints, I think you come up with very different solutions. And I think the reason why we still don't see that much hypermedia in part is that a lot of people are just thinking, I want to build an API. What's my fastest way to do it? I expose my functions. I expose maybe my data access, and then I'm done. Right. And in that in that kind of in that set of constraints that you give yourself, that may be a rational decision to make. All right, let's go back to that that document from 15 years ago for a second. Um, although before I do, I guess we can agree that um, no one who's building an application should really care if they're restful. I mean, that should not be the goal. The goal should be to build an application that's uh, profitable or helps the world or or something along those lines. Yeah. So um, to, to to invoke Mark Nottingham again, Mark has this great website. And I think it's isitrestful.com. Is that right? I don't know. If, uh, you, we'd have to check it. But it's a place where you can ask if your if your website is restful, and it's a brilliant site because it basically just trolls you with answers every time. Because it absolutely does not matter. You're exactly correct. You shouldn't be asking this question at all. It's, you know, it's basically saying, you know, does this web website look my butt look big? You know, it's like that doesn't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't matter at all. Right. The name. The name uh, of the style you're using shouldn't matter. But what does matter? What you alluded to is there might be properties or constraints you can adopt that matter. And when we go back and look at the dissertation. That's actually one of the interesting things. If you actually go back, there is precision about what REST is. The way Fielding defines it, it's not just a computer arts term. It's a computer science term. And he builds that whole system of um, uh, comparing network architectural styles, which doesn't sound that exciting. 
But he defines a set of what uh, constraints, mm-hmm. a set of properties, things like layered system, caching system, uh, and then he defines rest according to those things, right? And in that way, there's some precision. So we've moved away from that. But Mike, sounds like what you're kind of alluding to is what people can start to do is understand those bits, right? And it's really about applying bits of that to your particular application. Yeah. I, so, so what happens mostly is people talk about what you talked about, the constraints, uh, client service, stateless, cache, these kinds of things. They're, those are the, the constraints that sort of force people to behave in a certain way. What I find really, really interesting in my, in my sense, more interesting are the properties, system properties that you just mentioned. System properties happen in another chapter and he defines this set of system properties that he's aiming for. I want the system to be like this. The, the, the things that we don't normally think of as illities, evolvability, reliability, um, performability, that kind of stuff. And what's really, I think, elegant about his work, his, his precision, is he says, I want these properties that really are not measurable, so I'm going to apply these constraints that I can actually see. Is it really client-server? Is it really stateless? Is it really cacheable? And when you bring all these constraints together, the system is going to emerge these properties. It's going to have these properties. This is literally what he explains in the dissertation. What happened to me is, because I didn't really understand the way REST was being read back in, in you know, 2001 and two, when I had my trouble, I jumped to the property section. I said, yeah, that's the property I want. How do I do that? And then I noticed there were a couple of constraints associated with it. I said, okay, those are constraints I'll use. I didn't really do the resty thing. I was like solving my problem here. Okay, add these constraints. So I only added the ones I needed at the time. And I think that's a really that for me, that worked really, really well. And it, it helped me to kind of understand how those things interacted uh, in a really important way. So, Mike, just out of curiosity, so when you did that the, when, the first time, right, was Hypermedia something that you ran into as uh, when you were looking for the properties that you were interested in and then you, you went to the Hypermedia constraint? Or does that just wasn't it interesting for you and you just didn't? Do it. Yeah, in the in the very beginning, it was not interesting to me at all. I understood I needed a link somewhere, but but I was so focused on performance and scalability. And since I owned both ends of it, it was just it was just a means to an end. I didn't focus on it at all. Hypermedia uh, as this ability to do late binding and modify things later really came a lot later in the curve for me because I that's it wasn't until I had to deal with a lot of clients I couldn't control that I had that particular problem. So in the beginning, I ignored that section at all. And that's why I never even noticed it was so-called missing because I wasn't even looking for it. That's really interesting, right? I mean, to to see that, yeah, I, I didn't need that. The system I was building kind of out of the box had this magic um, alignment between service and clients because that is what I did. And then you just ended up ignoring that constraints because you could. And, well, it worked, right, until you got to the point where your magic alignment disappeared. And then suddenly you realized, oh, I don't have my property anymore. Now now what? Right? Yeah. yeah. So that's actually a very nice validation, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that really was the journey for me. Um, I took the stuff I needed at the time. I wasn't very parochial and I didn't really care. And a lot of the stuff I just didn't need. And I would go on to the very next project. So, you know, it wasn't like the same project. I stayed on this project long enough that it evolved into all those things. It would just be the next time something came up, 
I might have to dig back a little bit further. And that's just kind of the way I've operated. It sounds like a, a profitable and valuable way uh, to approach architecture. So we should we should try and dig into that more. Um, Eric, I'm kind of curious. You've been involved in a, in a conference around REST for uh, a workshop. workshop for quite a few years. It's part of the W3C conference, I think, right? It's hosted within that. Yeah, the web conference, the top top conference. Yeah, we mostly had our workshops there. So I want to I want to hear in terms of the early days of it's called WS REST. Yes. Um, what what kind of things were people grappling with? Was the were their experiences similar to what we just heard from Mike? Were people trying to figure out how to induce properties based on constraints, or was it completely misguided understandings of what they were reading? Tell us a bit about what it was like. So when we got started, um, we had the first edition of the workshop was in 2010. So that was when REST already had picked up a little bit. And the, the name, right, WS REST was kind of a very intentional pun on the WS splash standards, right, that kind of took over the world at that point or already failed at taking over the world at that point. So um, and, and we got a very, very good attendance the first time we did that. Um, and it was mostly, I think, the people in the audience were people who were, like myself, kind of disillusioned with web services at the time, which mostly in, in practice were using SOAP and were just not webby from the architectural point of view, right? They were just RPC, which is fair. I mean, if, if you want to build a system where RPC is a good solution, then that's fine. It just doesn't have a lot to do with the web, right? It's a different kind of architecture. And it was mostly people who were interested in learning more about what REST is about, what the style is about, what the difference is between the style and the technologies used to implement the style on the web, and also why the style and the technologies promise to come up with different properties when used correctly um, than the usual SOAP solution would do. Was there, was there ever any attempts to extend that list of properties or has, has that property list remained pretty static over the last 17, 18, 20 years? That's a very good question. Um, I, I don't know. I actually, um, I'm sure that people have looked into some of these properties and um, I mean, there was like there are some attempts that people have been doing um, around sort of transactional things, right? Longer lasting interactions. Always one of the problems with webby, resty things where everything is like these individual stateless interactions, right? And if you want to do transactional things, there's always sort of a couple of hoops you have to jump through. But mostly, I think what people have done is they kind of layered patterns of conversation of conversational um, interactions on top of REST and said, well, if you follow this approach to design your interaction this way, then you can actually um, get to transactional um, properties on top of your basic REST things. Um, but Mike, you you may have seen things appearing as well. Um, yeah, actually, I think that UC Irvine, where, where Roy Fielding was, produced a couple of other people um, Aaron Krantz, I can't remember his first name, uh, he had a dissertation that did expand that list of, of REST elements to include things like asynchronous REST. And um, uh, he also had, he had this idea about 
moving portability. Like one of the elements in the property set is portability, but it doesn't get a lot of play inside uh, Fielding's description of constraints. And Aaron Krantz, uh, Justin, that's his name, Justin Aaron Krantz also has this thing about making code portable. So you would actually, just the way caches sort of make documents, bring documents closer to execution, he described a way in which code gets moved closer to execution. So there have definitely been attempts to, to kind of build on this story uh, in some really creative ways. I think some of Justin's work ended up in uh, flash trading, in uh, micro trading systems in New York City, if I remember correctly. Um, I, just as an aside, I would love, I, I tend to get fascinated by these kinds of models. So this properties, actually there's properties plus requirements uh, equals constraints to get a system. I would love to see somebody come up with this kind of precision for the CRUD way that we do things, because it's a totally viable system. You know, if CRUD systems exhibit these kinds of properties, uh, what are the constraints that we really need to be using? We need to limit to a series of verbs, so on and so forth. I've floated it a couple of times, but there's not a lot of interest in that space because most people in that CRUD space are just interested in building the apps that really work. They're not really interested in creating some theoretical uh, mathematical equation. Um, but I find that property plus requirements equals constraints to, um, to emerge a system a really, really valuable way of thinking. Yeah, it sounds like no matter whether you're doing um, what we're calling CRUD or whether you're looking for the, the ideal of REST, the hypermedia, there's still lots of discoveries to be made, lots of things to figure out in terms of how to induce the properties that, that Fielding describes. I know, Mike, you actually have a, a yearly conference you do. Um, it's called RESTFest. Maybe yes. you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it, it's really, it's, um, this is really fascinating. So RESTFest uh, was born in uh, uh, North Carolina at the first WS REST event that, that Eric had put together. There was a group of us who didn't get in on the fun, and we were thinking, well, we want to do something, but it doesn't make any sense to duplicate this. What could we do that's a little bit different? So the approach we took is a bit uh, uh, borrowed from the open conference idea or the sort of um, um, a free form idea format. So what we did is we, we started an event uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, and uh, 2010 was the first year. I think we had maybe 20 people there. Um, and it's a very different style event. You, uh, the rule we have is you show up, you're going to give a talk. We always have a keynote. Eric, I think, uh, uh, was our guest last year, right? Isn't that right? Yep. Yeah. And, um, and we, we all get together for three days and we literally collaborate. We literally link together and we do things that, that uh, we're not even sure what's going to happen. That's the, sort of the extreme late binding conference. Uh, it's a fantastic experience. And it turns out last year we also started doing one in Edinburgh, Scotland, which we will also do this year as well. So we have an event in May in Edinburgh, an event in September in Greenville. And... I love this event so much because I learn something new every single year. It's usually kept relatively small, around 40 people, because that's sort of a good size for the way we collaborate. But now we're in two locations, and I, I, I just enjoy it. It's one of my favorite things every year. Now, one, one of the things I realize, though, is uh, we don't use the term rest. But I think certainly when we walk into most rooms... Uh, those people are using the word rest. In fact, rest is still a very, very popular term. Um, Eric, what's your take on that? When, when people say rest, what do they usually mean and why 
does rest mean that in in the mainstream uh, I think what they usually mean nowadays when they say rest or when you see rest being mentioned in some announcement saying we have a rest API right usually it just means HTTP based that's pretty much what it comes down to um, and to me that is really a, a result of this dichotomy that came up when soap was hopefully being replaced by something better and back then people said oh yeah we should do rest right and and that somehow i think got people in the mindset of well if it's not soap and it uses http it has to be rest right and and then like people like mike and myself came in and said wait wait no not quite as fast right rest actually means a little bit more than just using http for something random but i think that never really um got traction so now we're at the point where it's sort of the rest is being used as a kind of confusing name and and i think this also is the reason why people who initially were very enthusiastic about it basically stopped using the term because it kind of got diluted and then you rather start talking about other things or use different names yeah and in my experience what happens is i walk into a room whether it's on a client site or a conference event or something says well we have a rest we have a rest or we have a restful api and i say you have one that uses http right and they say yeah and i say cool well you know that's fine so that i think i think that's my experience as well it's mostly about http and it's about the sort of the anti-branding of non-http whatever that was um so i think people use that a lot and to me that that's just fine um what, what I do when I start these conversations or when I join the conversations is I try to make sure which one, you know, which definition they're comfortable with and stick with that story. One, one thing that I don't do is I don't say, no, you're wrong. Stop saying that word. Uh, I'm going to send Roy Fielding's police after you kind of thing. Uh, the exception to that is, and you guys know this from me, occasionally I get annoyed when uh, particularly influential voices use the, the term REST to mean HTTP. Uh, large companies, large organizations, and they publish sort of guidance documents that I know hundreds of thousands of people will look at. So I get a little glum and a little, a little you know, sardonic for a while, but I, I get over it after, after a bit. I go off and I'm here in Kentucky. I sit on my porch and I drink suburban and I say, what the hell, that's fine. Move on with it. All right, so if... Uh REST is interesting to you. There's two, two events for you. There's WS REST and REST Fest. Um, in summation here, what, what hopefully is clear, there is something called REST that's defined in a dissertation. Uh, and there's also the real world of how people use REST. Usually when I'm talking to people building applications, I say, look, you can call this thing, whatever you want to call it. That's not, that's not the important part. But what is important is understanding some of those properties and constraints that Eric and Mike have both described. Um, this is the first and I think probably the last time you'll see a podcast with rest in the name for that reason, because it's just so confusing. Uh, but you can expect other episodes in the future where we'll dive into things like hypermedia or URIs or, you know, the nature of webbiness for applications. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed our first and only episode on, on rest. But before we close, as always, we're going to do a point-counterpoint. Uh, I considered doing a point-counterpoint on WS REST versus REST Fest, but I think that would be too, nah. too personal. Yeah. So instead, we're going to do a point-counterpoint on, on REST. And Eric, I'm going to give you 
this point to argue. Rest is dead. As always, you'll get one minute to argue the point that rest is dead. When your one minute is up, you'll hear this bell. At which point, Mike Amundsen will argue the counterpoint. Mike, you're going to argue the counterpoint that rest is the future. You will also be given one minute. And then I will make some kind of arbitrary judgment to decide the winner. It, it didn't seem so arbitrary to me the last times we did it. It, it always seemed to end up me losing. But There's a, in that case, it's fine. I like it. I hope I lose. There, there is a formal grievance process. It is not to bring it up on the show. We talked about that. I'm actually going to have to deduct some points even before you start. It's fine. I'm just trying to make sure I lose. All right, Eric. The point you're going to argue is that rest is dead. Your time starts now. Okay, thank you very much. So um, the point I want to argue is that rest is dead. And I think there's really that, not that much that you have to talk about because very clearly it has been around for a very long time. The, the name has been around for 15 years. There, there have been a lot of promises that allows us to do all these great things. And as we can see that there really isn't that much uptake. People don't like hypermedia. They're not using it. There's very little proof that people actually perceive it as valuable. Um, and now you can see that the few APIs that try to be RESTful are all being replaced by GraphQL, which clearly is infinitely better than REST. So I think it's just you just take a hard look at what's going on and then there's no much debate to have. You just say, okay, that's over. Let's see what else we can play around with. Maybe GraphQL. Really? That's it? That's it. That's the best you got. All right. All right, Mike. Yeah, pretty easy one for you today. Rest is the future is your counterpoint. Starting now. Yeah. So actually, it is really easy. Rest is the only thing anybody should be doing anything. No matter what your, what your problem is, you should be using Rest. This is a well-defined 175-page dissertation by a brilliant guy. It doesn't matter that it's close to 20 years old. It still applies. Everything works today. So what you need to do whenever you start an application, regardless of what the tool says, you should build a REST piece. Even if it doesn't let you do hypermedia or let you do links, you should get down, get your hands dirty, build all this stuff by hand, artisanal code every single time. Go through that list of all of the constraints and all of the properties of REST. Make sure you do every single one of them, even if you're just doing a tiny little utility app, because the most important thing is whether or not your project is RESTful. You want to make sure you can pass that test. If you can't pass that test, it doesn't actually matter what the application's doing or how it works or whether or not it's even successful. If it's not REST, it stinks. Wow. I didn't think you could do a worse job than Eric, but that was oh. terrible. <laughs> Awful. So the winner today is Eric. I mean, yes, let's call rest him, is dead. Yeah, the least, you, how can I put it? You were the, the least worst today. So congratulations. And that's the show on rest, our first and last. Thank you. Eric, this is your first win. I know, I know, I'm confused. I don't know what I did wrong. I, I, did, ter I did terrible. I think it's good. You didn't want to win the so bad. Oh.